Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Farrell, and I'm joined here today by our treasurer, Nick Adowski. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing well, Garrett. Thank you. And we are also joined by our guest today, uh, Mr. Aubrey Robertson, who is the president of the McClendon County Criminal Defense Bar. Uh, how are you doing today, Aubrey? I'm great. Thanks, you guys, for coming in. Thank you for uh, joining us. This should be a good episode. Yeah. So, um, we normally kind of start these things with your story. How did you become a lawyer? Why did you go into criminal law? Um, that sort of thing. So sure. So I was I went to undergraduate uh, at Baylor. I have I got my degrees in political science and Slavic and Eastern European studies, and I minored in history and the Russian language. Um, I thought when I went to law school that I was going to go write constitutions for former Soviet bloc countries. That's that's what I wanted to do. Um, I ended up going to law school for that reason on the East Coast. I went to New York Law School. Um, and some things changed about my trajectory while I was there. I interned with the DA's office in Harris County. Um, and I got involved uh, with the criminal law clinic that our law school had up in New York. And that allowed me as a third year law school student to get my bar card, my student bar card, and I could go into New York City courts and represent people with the help of the Legal Aid Society supervising lawyer. And so once I had that, that opportunity to be in a court, make an argument to a judge, advocate for a position, I knew that there was going to be no um, sitting in my office writing constitutions. That it was going to be in a courtroom um, making an argument. And so when I graduated law school, um, I started work at the Harris County DA's office uh, immediately as a prosecutor. Was there for uh, about three or four years, went into private practice for a little while, and then moved to Waco in 2014 because there was an opening here for an assistant district attorney. And so I moved to Waco, and here I got to be the chief felony prosecutor for the 19th District Court. So. I supervised other prosecutors and I handled all the big, um, serious, complex cases for the court. Um, so I've, I've seen it all in terms of uh, the types of cases you handle in criminal law. Um, and now I do um, some personal injury work, but I still do a lot of criminal defense. And uh, as you mentioned kind of at the top there, I'm now the president of the McLennan County Criminal Defense Lawyers Association which is a group of lawyers in McLennan County that focus on criminal defense. Um, we get together every month, put on some, some seminars, um, but usually it's just a great resource. You know, we bounce ideas off of each other, uh, collaborate to the extent we can to, to undermine the state. Um, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good organization filled with lots of good lawyers. Um, but criminal law is, is my passion, the personal injury stuff, it pays the bills. It allows me to handle the, the criminal cases, um, and I absolutely love it. I couldn't imagine uh, practicing law that wasn't didn't at least involve uh, an aspect of criminal law. Did you when you were in New York? What what borough were you mostly in? Were you in Manhattan mostly? So I lived in Manhattan. Um, my first year of law school, our law school had bought an apartment building on the Lower East Side. And so I lived on the Lower East Side my first year and then moved up to Midtown my second and third year. Um, and I actually interviewed at the Manhattan DA's office because I, by that time I had decided I wanted to be a prosecutor. 
and I interviewed at the Manhattan DA's office and I don't know if I've told people I got a formal job interview, but it was kind of those, the supervisors like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to hire you. Um, but then you find out what these people make and I was going to have to like live in Pennsylvania <laughs> and commute into Manhattan. And I just, all of my family's from Houston and I was going to be making more money as a prosecutor in Houston with a lower cost of living. And so that was, that was an easy decision, but yeah, it was Manhattan and the law school was right next, like a block away from the courthouses. And so, uh, it was a great experience. I, uh, I, I went to Fordham actually in the Bronx oh, and, uh, and yeah. for, for undergrad and, uh, I had to commute down to Queens for my internship at the DA's office uh -huh. in Queens. Yep. And after doing that commute for about three months, I, I said, you know, I, I really can't no. work. <laughs> it was, you know, a lot of people are put off by living in New York city and it is an experience. Um, you know, growing up in Texas, being used to, I mean, I had my car when I was 15 years old, like, you know, and then I moved to New York and I don't take a car and, you know, it's, it's this whole different world. Um, but it was such a valuable, valuable experience being exposed to, to all of that. But yeah, you can't, can't be a prosecutor and live in Manhattan. There's just no way that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so sort of you, you've been you've been all over the place as far as um, offices go mm -hmm. and for for those interested in criminal law um, especially at Baylor uh, we, we don't really get that much advice um, well, well it's starting to pick up from right. our faculty advisors and we're starting to put a little bit more emphasis on it but um, this weekend we were down at Huntsville and there were some prosecutors that we had talked to and, and they you know we were asking them for advice and tips and one of them said you know ask somebody to describe their office in one word, you know, do you have any like advice like that that you would, you would offer? Yeah. So if what I found in both supervising prosecutors, but, but and, on, and to a lesser extent on the defense side, but especially new lawyers, it is, um, you have to want to be in trial to be a prosecutor. Um, and in criminal law in general, we go to trial more often than anybody else. And so, if you have a hesitant, and, and we all get nervous when we get up to speak, I still feel like I'm going to throw up when I'm starting board dire. But that tells me that I recognize how important this is to me and my client. And so you never get rid of those nerves. But if you're going to go into criminal law, you have to be ready to go to trial. I was in trial within two weeks of getting my, my bar results. I, I was prosecuting a DWI case. And so anybody who is looking into this field of law has to understand you're not going to become a millionaire most likely you're going to work harder than all your other lawyer friends but you're also going to have all the best stories at parties you're going to have the most fun in your job um, and so my advice to people who who kind of think they might want to go into criminal law is to tell them it is exceptionally rewarding but it is exceptionally hard work it is um, as compared to like my personal injury work that I do where I spend a majority of my time falling asleep reading medical records, you know, that doesn't happen in criminal law. You, it's not boring. There's never a boring moment. And so just be prepared to work really hard, have your clients be mad at you and not make a lot of money. Um, but it's, it's a lot of fun. So of course now with you being a defense attorney, how was your transition from being a prosecutor to a defense attorney? Was it sort of a bumpy road or was it a pretty smooth transition? Um, for me, it was a pretty smooth transition, and that goes to kind of uh, your legal philosophy, right? And so as a prosecutor, my job, the oath you take as a prosecutor is to see that justice is done. 
you don't take an oath to to send somebody to jail or get as many convictions as you can. Now, um, what certain prosecutorial organizations and what a lot of prosecutor offices do is bring the focus to convictions, um, how often you're going to trial, how many convictions you're getting. But for me, it was always about um, what is the right thing to do. And in fact, I mean, you can Google me. I've been fired twice for doing the right thing. And I have, I have no qualms about the people, you know, that made the decision to fire me. But my uh, professional opinion about a case was that I cannot prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And my supervisor is saying, well, go in there and try it and let the jury decide. No, I'm the lawyer. I'm the attorney. You're paying me a lot of money to make this decision. I am telling you, I do not have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I think the case should be dismissed. I get fired. I'm okay with that scenario. Um, and, and the truth is, is as a defense attorney, uh, the job is similar. I want to make sure that the criminal justice system does not, um, I don't know, isn't disproportionately impactful on one person as opposed to another. Everybody's entitled to a fair trial. And, and that's how I view my role as a defense attorney, is to make sure that if the state accuses you of something, they better have the proof. And that's, I mean, that's okay. I mean, that's okay to require our government to, to prove that you did something wrong if they want to take away your liberties. And so a lot of people ask, how can you represent child molesters? How can you represent somebody who murdered somebody? Um, well, because the Constitution says that they're entitled to a fair trial. And I know that if that guy gets a fair trial, well, if I'm ever accused of something, I'll get a fair trial too. And so it is, it is so important. The role of the defense attorney is so incredibly important um, in the criminal justice system um, because it, make, it, it makes the, the government um, stick to their, uh, their burden. Yeah. Um, do you, have you noticed any like trends within criminal law in the last five or 10 years as far as DA's offices go and sort of, pro we're not, you know, fo the focus has started to change or do you think it's headed in any particular direction? You know, the problem is, is that district attorney's offices are led by politicians. You know, your, your DA is an elected politician. And so you always are concerned with, is this person making a decision because it's going to help them get elected the next time around? Or is this person um, doing what they think is right? And so when you talk about trends, um, there's been big pushes to uh, crack down on things like domestic violence or violence in general. Um, well, there's, there's not a lot the district attorney, the elected DA, can do about that particular issue. Um, and, and violence is a, is a good thing because people are talking about it right now. That if you really want to solve an increased rate of violent crime, the answer, which is what you will hear from most politicians, the answer is harsher sentences. Let's send people to jail for longer because if they're in jail longer, that'll deter other people from committing this crime and then therefore the overall crime rate goes down. I think that is um, predicated on a whole bunch of false presumptions. Um, and I think the true uh, way to get crime down, the true, the true way to bring it down in a measurable way is to make the time between when you commit the crime and when you're punished for the crime much shorter. I have clients right now that have been on bond, charged with a felony offense for over five years, okay? 
Think about a uh, child that touches a hot stove. There is immediate pain. Child never touches hot stove again. If child touches hot stove, but doesn't feel pain for a year, child's going to repeatedly touch hot stove. It, it is that simple. And so when you have people that sit over in the McLennan County Jail for over a thousand days waiting for their trial, a thousand days to be without freedom when you've not been convicted of anything, uh, that's a problem. And you're not actually getting the deterrent effect from a harsher sentence because the time for that sentence, the punishment is so far away from the originating crime. I, Vic disagrees with me a little bit on this in that I think most criminals, most people who commit crimes, do some type of cost-benefit analysis in the immediate, uh, immediately prior to committing the crime or in the lead-up to committing the crime. Is this crime worth committing, you know, that I might go to jail? Well, if, if you know you're not going to go to jail for five years and you can sit out on bond in the free world with your job and your kids, and your, your cost of committing that crime goes way down because you're not sitting in jail or you're not being punished for the crime. And so politicians can talk about harsher prison sentences all day long. That does not solve the problem, and it only creates a bigger stress on the system. Our, our, our jail here, the Board of Prisons, the juvenile justice system in this, in this state is all woefully understaffed. There's kids out in juvenile detention who are peeing in bottles and defecating on their food trays because there's not enough staff to come take them to the bathroom. Children, I don't care that what they're charged with, they're children and they're peeing in a bottle. That's unacceptable. We, we live in the United States of America, not Rwanda. Like, I mean, it's, it's uh, unbelievable to me. Um, and so those kinds of systemic issues lead to disparate treatment and a lack of trust among the public. So I don't believe necessarily that the criminal justice system is systemically racist. Um, I think you, there are racist elements of it, but if you aren't also talking about how it is systemically um, classist, it is, it is horrible for people of lesser economic means, they get worse treatment in the criminal justice system uh, than your average person because they can't afford a lawyer or you know they think they can just be railroaded. Uh, sort of going along with that, uh, it, it, talking about classism and, and you know how there's disparate treatment. Um, do you think that issue is inherently rooted in the way that bond and bail is set within the within the? Uh, yes, um, and you were t you asked about trends a moment ago, and I think. You know, I think that is one of the trends that we've seen really over probably a longer period of time, 20 to 30 years. I mean, it goes back to when I started, before I started as a prosecutor in Houston in 2008, where bond becomes an instrumentality just to keep someone in jail because we're afraid that they may not commit, or they may commit a crime again. When the real intention of bond is to, or a bail, is to secure your presence in, in court. Now, of course you take into consideration factors of risk to the community and, and those types of things, but the main thing is, is somebody gonna show up to court? What is the appropriate amount of money to put somebody on the hook for that they're gonna show up to court? That's what it started out as. And it has become a, well, this guy committed a really, or he's accused of committing a really heinous crime. Let's put his bond at 
$250,000 or a million dollars. Doesn't matter that he has no criminal history. Doesn't matter that he hasn't been found guilty of a crime. He's been accused of a crime. His liberty has been taken away and he's been put under a million dollar bond sitting over at the jail. And, and um, that as much as anything else has, has overcrowded our jails, put stress on the justice system, um, and led to, again, a fundamental distrust of the system by the people. And, and uh, that's really unfortunate because when I started as a prosecutor in Houston, we still wore the white hat. Like I could still walk into a courtroom and I was the prosecutor, so I got the benefit of the doubt. Now you can, you talk to the public, you talk to people that show up for jury duty. I mean, prosecutors don't hold the same you know, clout that they used to hold. And I think part of it is, is exactly what you're touching on. They see stories about people being in jail for a thousand days, overwhelming uh, bond amounts being set on, on crimes, and then these, these hellaciously big uh, jury trial dockets. Right. Um, so sort of, sort of going around <laughs> talking about the bail issue. Um, when I, when I worked in Queens, uh, intern, I mean, it's been four or five years now, 2019, 2018, yeah. around there. Um, I worked in economic crimes and, uh, sort of talking about the cost benefit analysis of committing a crime, mm-hmm. you know, credit card theft is, right. is, is giant, you know, you know, credit card companies take the hit, the person gets the 500 bucks or whatever, right. and they can do it over and over. And, you know, realistically, uh, at the time, at least, they you know you spend a year in jail or whatever right. for for the theft, and uh, you know the the guys didn't care because you know I, I can make five hundred thousand dollars a year yep. and uh, <laughs> and go to and, and spend a year in jail and yep. get I'm out and it's fine. Correct. Um, the other thing that's sort of going along with that is that uh, when the new DA got elected, uh, they one of the things they ran on was no bail, mm. no cash bail, at least. right, right, and. Uh, the prosecutors in the office basically said like this is the whole point of bail is that people show up if i have a bunch of you know romanian nationals right. that have no bail they're gonna you know they're gone like right. i'll never see them in court and like that's not justice but right. you know where where that line is drawn is sort of you know tricky it's a it's a political issue right correct so how, how do we get to that point where we're able to say okay this is like this is this is where we're gonna you know, draw, draw the line. line i i think as lawyers um we are always looking for that bright line rule. Somebody write me down the rule so I know that this is this category of cases and this is that category of cases. And what we need to be talking about here, because especially in criminal law, when you're talking about depriving somebody of their freedom, it really should be an individualized assessment. And so here, if you are arrested in McLennan County and you're taken to the county jail, you will see a magistrate usually the same day, but within 24 hours, you will see a magistrate. That magistrate is the person who sets your bond. That magistrate has little to no information about you or the crime that you've committed, nothing. Oftentimes, all they will have is a folder that has just the allegation, just the name of the crime, possession of a controlled substance. That's what they make the bond determination on. Not whether or not you're a flight risk, not whether or not you have any prior history, nothing. Not whether or not you have any open cases. What is the crime you are accused of? And now there might be some back and forth with the magistrate and the defendant about some of those things to clear some of that up. But how can you ever give an individualized assessment on bond if you don't have the basic facts? So in Houston, for example, 
the state would recommend a bond amount. We were there for every magistrate hearing. The state would recommend the bond amount based on the criminal history, which we would provide to the magistrate, the warrantless arrest affidavit, which was a, a you know facts of the case, which we would provide to the magistrate, and then the magistrate could make their determination based on on those circumstances, on those factors, and that's not what's happening here. Well, isn't in the code of criminal procedure aren't there you know yes. the six or seven yes. factors that are supposed to be laid out? Correct. But there's nothing that holds the magistrate. I, there's no like form I can go back and uh, subpoena or that has to be turned over to me in discovery that says I, the magistrate, evaluated these six factors. But you're absolutely correct. There's things that they should look at. Dangerousness, flight risk, prior criminal history. Now, what is the person charged with? What's their bond amount? And uh, that's, that's, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. So do many people, like, when they're accused of a crime and are getting their bond set, do they have an attorney there so that they can sort of argue no. that, um, like, factors at all? No. Um, when you get your bond set by the magistrate at the jail, um, that's it. You are by yourself. It is oftentimes you and the magistrate and a deputy sheriff standing there in the room. And that's, and I mean, really, I think for the last three years, they've been doing it via Zoom. So you're not even in the room with the magistrate. Um, and so, no. What happens is if I get a client whose bond is set at, I mean, $10,000 and say they can't even bond out on that, but whatever the amount is, after the bond has been set, um, they can go and hire a lawyer and then I can go and move to reduce the bond amount, but I'm not there for the presence of the initial setting of the bond. Um, and luckily our district court judges have been pretty open to hearing bond reduction requests. Um, but when I started at, talking about the, the code of criminal procedure, when I started at the DA's office here, they were holding people on no bond. And the code of criminal procedure says you can hold somebody on no bond, but after so many days, you're entitled to a hearing. They have to have a hearing um, because you have to have a bond. Um, but it is, it is a, a huge, huge problem. Like I said, for me, it's about um, having faith in the system and any, because that's what it's based on. Like we, we trust that the things coming out of the courthouse are the right outcomes um, because we have to believe that. And if, if more and more people don't trust that what's coming out of that courthouse is the right outcome, then uh, we, we all lose. We all lose. Sort of switching gears a little bit. Um, how many how many cases do you usually deal with on a on a yearly basis, or you know by month, or does it do you see sort of trends in uh, different months, especially in Waco? The population shifts somewhat, right. obviously here. So we used to always say um, that it would always get busier in the summer. That you would see an uptick in crimes in the summer. One because you know it was hot and people were outside, and you know your temperatures would run hot. These are what the Houston Police Department officers used to tell us. Um, but it's probably, if you average it out, it's probably the same year round. I, what I want to say about, about that kind of thing is I'm lucky enough in this firm that I don't rely on my criminal cases, like I said, to pay the bills. If you're an attorney that is solely relying on your criminal cases to pay the bills, you almost have to take an inordinate and overwhelming amount of cases to, to, to be able to keep an office open. Um, and that's why I've always been an advocate for a public defender system. 
um, even if it's a hybrid public defender system. Again, something like Houston, where they start their public defender's office started with, I think, only taking like capital cases and first degree felonies, and then they would expand to the lower ones. We have um, not nearly enough attorneys on our appointed or court appointed attorneys list here because, so I'm qualified to handle every single case that somebody can be tried with or charged with under the, the indigent defense statute. But I will not go and sign up to be on the indigent defense list in this county because the only cases I will get, and I would get two or three of them a week, are sexual assault of a child cases. If you wanted to give me all the murders in this county to defend, I'd do it. But the sexual assault of a child cases, not because of the nature of the crime itself, but because of the work that has to go into those cases, the fact that you're dealing with child victims, the fact that you're dealing with CPS, you're so much more complicated, right? And so I can't afford to have two dozen sexual assault of a child cases um, appointed to me. I can't, I can't do it. And we only have a handful of lawyers in this town that uh, will agree to be on the, that list so that they'll go get those appointments. Um, and that's, a, that's also a sad situation for those people charged with that crime. Do you wow. find that it's like the younger lawyers kind of that are just starting up their practice or um, just moved to Waco that are like kind of on the, the wheel or the list right now? Um, I, would, I would say no, and primarily because there aren't a lot of young lawyers here practicing criminal law. There really aren't. Um, and so the majority of our lawyers on the defense, the indigent defense list on the wheel, they're older. I mean, old white guys. I mean, that's who it is. Um, and they're all, they're great lawyers. I mean, some of, I, I tell clients all the time who come in here to hire us on the criminal case because they're upset with their court appointed lawyer. You know, I'll say, well, who is your court appointed lawyer? And they'll tell me the name of the lawyer. And I'm thinking, well, that I got a really good lawyer. Like if I were in trouble, I'd probably go hire that lawyer. And so, but there's this, you know, stigma that comes with being a court appointed lawyer that they think, you know, they're not working for them. Um, but there's great lawyers that do that court appointed work. Um, and we need, we need more of them. And I think it's what I said in the, my campaign for district attorney is I think it's inevitable that McLennan County is going to have to adopt some type of public defender system. I suggested you do a regional public defender system here in central Texas with the four or five surrounding counties. Everybody contributes, you know, because Falls County, Coriel County, these rural counties around us, they, they barely have a DA's office with an elected DA and maybe one or two assistants. Like they, they can't afford, the county can't afford to put up a public defender's office. But if you get four or five counties together and we share, uh, share the expense, I think it would it would benefit everybody, benefit the accused, but it also benefit the victims of crime who are also out there waiting for their day in court for five or whatever years, and then it would ease the pressure on the system itself. The uh, the indigent um, appointment statute that you, that you mentioned, you get paid through the through the county then mm -hmm. if you okay. So if so, your personal clients that you have you don't know, walk into your office and you know come in and say hey, do you mind uh, representing me? Do you ever have problems chasing them down to get paid or is it generally? All the time. Yeah. All the time. I mean, and that's, you know, that's any time, uh, you know, our general starting fee for a felony, second or third degree felony generally starts at about 10 grand. I don't know many people that just have 10 grand sitting in their bank account. They can, can write me a check 
Um, and so we set it up, you know, we like to get something close to half of the fee up front. Um, and you can make payments on the rest of it. Um, so that's, that's how we do it. But yes, you will chase people um, to, to try and get them to pay you. Uh, you will, if you ever listen to some of the docket calls in court, you'll hear attorneys ask for green resets and it's, they need a reset to get paid. And so, um, as a prosecutor, whenever a defense attorney would come to me and say, Hey, I need a green reset. Of course, absolutely. You're trying to pay the bills. Uh, absolutely. But one thing I want to say, because you brought it up about the getting paid through the county, let me give you an example. If I have a misdemeanor, um, let's say criminal trespass. So if I am appointed to represent a defendant charged with misdemeanor criminal trespass, and I don't know the exact figures I've forgotten, but let's say I plead that person out, they get 30 days in the county jail. My court appointed fee that I turn my voucher into the county for um, is uh, $350, I think. Um, now, if I have that same client charged with criminal trespass, but I have a video of him in another place, I have a great alibi, and I have to go argue with the prosecutor, and I argue and argue and argue with the prosecutor, just dismiss the case, dismiss the case, and I finally convince the prosecutor to dismiss the case after all that work, I get $200. I get paid more to plead my clients out than I get paid to go argue with the prosecutor to get a case dismissed. That is backwards. That is what any lawyer will tell you. It is so much harder. And as a former prosecutor, I would tell you, it is a lot harder to get me to dismiss a case than to get you to plea a case out. So you have to work twice as hard, three times as hard, and you get paid less money. You are, the system is incentivized to plead people out, to twist your client's arm into taking a plea agreement. It, it's, you are monetarily incentivized as a lawyer to do that. Now, I say that, and then I will also say, I do not know any lawyer that in that scenario I gave you that would not go and beat down the door of the district attorney's office to prove their client had an alibi and get the dismissal. Of course you do, because that's the oath we take as lawyers to represent our clients. But it shouldn't, I shouldn't be monetarily incentivized to just play the client out. Right. Talk about like a drain on the kind of resources. Right. Uh, right. Uh, if somebody's sitting in jail for 30 days, you know, I wonder what the, the, the math would look like on that for, uh, you know, just food alone. Yeah. Um, and man, if we had done this during the campaign, yeah, I had all those numbers because I'm a big advocate and proponent of the legalization of marijuana mm -hmm. because I think we spend way too much money incarcerating people and prosecuting people for possession of marijuana. In fact, uh, the state of Oklahoma, their ballot measure for recreational marijuana is today. Mm -hmm. So we're going to find out today whether or not Oklahoma is going to have uh, recreational marijuana. Um, but who, who if, if I mind asking, who, who are the who are the people that are really like pushing against legalized weed? So, um, I mean, you would think this happened in like the 1950s, but in in my campaign for district attorney, we were at a forum, and uh, the guy running for county commissioner, one of the guys running for county commissioner, our state elected representative Doc Anderson was also there. I stood up and I said what I said to you. I'm for the legalization of marijuana. It is, we should tax it. Other states are making literally billions of dollars in tax revenue. We live in a state that doesn't have an income tax and we are the um, 
Independent Tax Policy Commission, whatever, did a study that said Texas is leaving potentially over a billion dollars in tax revenue just on the table because we don't want to legalize marijuana. And so I stand up and I say all that thinking I'm going to appeal to these nice fiscally conservative people that I'm talking to and uh, Doc Anderson, the state rep, and this guy running for county commissioner stand up and say, nope, it's a gateway drug. That's, they are still, again, like it's 1950. They are still, it is the devil's weed. It is a gateway drug. That, that's what we're fighting against. But if you look at any of the polls, um, including some of the ones I was reading about Oklahoma, uh, it's, it's getting up to close to like 70% approval for the legalization of marijuana. And uh, you have these remnants of, of kind of older individuals who still think that, uh, you know, I'm going to smoke a joint and then, you know, go do lines of coke off a hooker or something. I mean, you know, I don't know what the gateway is. Um, but like Vic Fazell, he, he was on the board of uh, Normal for uh, the legalization of marijuana laws and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's something I'm very passionate about just because I think... Um, it's silly that we're that we're spending money on it and everybody else is making money on it. So um, I know a lot of the big offices are just so overwhelmed that they don't even really take the time to prosecute some of these like low-level possession of marijuana cases, stuff like that. Do you think if Texas doesn't pass new legislation to sort of allow for recreational use of marijuana, do you think offices are just going to kind of continue to judicially not pay attention to that? And well, the thing is, is I is I'm not sure that I agree. In, with your premise necessarily because there are some offices that are choosing not to prosecute but it's it's not out of a sense of like uh i don't know it's not it's not coming from some rational decision making process of mm -hmm. oh this this is silly that we're prosecuting and we're spending money on it it's uh they're not prosecuting it because the texas legislature changed the law and didn't tell the texas department of uh toxicology or the, the forensic science department that they were going to change the law and they said that now you can sell things in Texas that have 0.03% THC in it. So they quantified how much THC could be in a particular item. Well there wasn't a machine in the state of Texas that could quantify THC in plant material or edible material. So the legislature passed this law and then nobody could prosecute a marijuana case because all the defense attorneys were like, okay, I want to see a lab report. Show me that it's only 0 .03, or that it's greater than 0.03% THC. And so that's why you saw offices like Harris County and some of your bigger offices go through and dismiss like wide swaths of these possession of marijuana cases. Again, not because it's, look at how great we are, it's not, we can't test it. So we got to dismiss it. Um, um. Sort of along that strain, but not not quite. Um, there's been some confusion about the new like open carry laws. Like, mm -hmm. uh, do you, what exactly do you know about that? It seems like uh, the law changed, and now nobody knows what the law is. Well, what I'll what I'll tell you about it is all my police officer friends um, don't like open carry laws mm -hmm. because they don't like they like to be the ones with the guns, right? They don't like have everybody else. Uh, walking around with with their guns uh, out in the open and so these this zeal to um, I don't know embrace the Second Amendment to the point that uh, we can't have any laws regulating guns in this country um, I think is the product of 
a political movement. And I think that Texas is just in a place where we're susceptible to those political whims. Um, but as, as a prosecutor, as somebody who worked closely with law enforcement, the last thing you want is more guns in a situation. I mean, police officers don't want to roll up on a situation and wonder who has a gun or, you know, be confronted with seven people openly carrying their guns, you know? So it's, um, you are correct that open carry law has, has confused a lot of people. Um, we represented a couple of people charged with, in the state of Texas, you can have what's called, called unlawful carrying of a weapon still. So you can be charged with having your weapon if at the time you have your weapon, you're committing some other crime. So I had a guy passed out in the parking lot of crickets in his nice Cadillac, and he, instead of driving home drunk, he passed out in his car, which, good for you. That's what I want you to do. I want you to fall asleep in your car. Well, the police roll up and look in the window, and his gun, they can see his gun in the center console. So he gets pulled out. He's very polite to the cops. He's drunk, but he's very polite. And they arrest him for the misdemeanor. He goes to jail. He's like got a $10,000 bond. He has to pay me to represent him. And I'm the whole time I'm like, well, I thought we were in an open carry state. What, why, why can't this, he's passed out. Why can't he have his gun? And I, I got the prosecutor to, to dismiss that one. Um, so in that regard, I guess the open carry laws, the confusion helps the defense part. So, so uh, kind of switching gears to like law students and advice for law students. Um, you kind of do like your civil and your criminal thing. Um, how do you balance those two? And um, how hard is it for like somebody that wants to go into defense to sort of take on a civil docket and a criminal docket as well? Um, it's not terribly difficult. Um, it is all about the way we've managed it here is I'm not on the appointment list. I don't take criminal appointments. If I did take criminal appointments, I would probably need a dedicated criminal paralegal just because of the volume. And you'll see that in a lot of criminal defense offices that, that practice solely criminal defense, they have you know, their dedicated criminal paralegal. Um, right now, because of the way we're structured, and I have probably about a dozen or so criminal cases right now, um, I don't need an individual paralegal. I can manage most of that by myself. Um, but if you're a law school student and you are thinking about uh, opening your own shop or getting on the appointment list, um, the, the thing to know here is that having a relationship with the judges is the end-all be-all, right? Like, I can go into Judge Kelly's courtroom or Judge West's courtroom, and if I have messed something up, fall on the sword, and they get it. If my client didn't show up for a hearing that he was supposed to because I didn't track it correctly, our judges here, it's going to be no, no big deal. Um, but that being said, if, if you are carrying a large criminal docket, you have to be prepared for the constant calling of the clients. I don't have any clients on the civil side that call me nearly as much as clients on the criminal side. And no matter what you do as a criminal defense attorney, um, it seems like you're going to be called a bastard and you know you didn't do everything you could have. Um, so be prepared for stuff like that. I mean, Vic is on the on the grievance committee for the State Bar of Texas, and he hears those types of grievances too, where you know my attorney didn't return phone calls or things like that. So my advice to to younger lawyers going into criminal law 
um, would probably honestly go work for a prosecutor's office right out of law school because there's nothing that will get you more trial experience. You can familiarize yourself with the criminal, with the, the law itself and the procedure in the place you're practicing um, and not have to worry about paying bills and keeping the lights on. So my advice is if you want to do criminal law, think about going to a prosecutor's office for a few years because um, there's no place else you'll get better or more trial experience. And you kind of learn how to, to build up the case and so then as a defense attorney when you get to that point you can see the weaknesses in a prosecutor's Absolutely. case and uh, be able well, to point out those weaknesses. You're 100% correct. And I'll, I'll tell you the other thing that's the flip side of that which was when I because I went from prosecution, defense, prosecution, defense. So my second time as a prosecutor, I was such, I was just a much better prosecutor because I had been a defense attorney. So because I knew what defense attorneys were facing in their office, I as a prosecutor knew I'm not gonna hang on to a case. If it's a bad case, let it go. You know, move it, move it on through the system. Um, but that, that time as a defense attorney really informed my, my second stint as a prosecutor. But that there's nothing like, like I said, there's nothing like getting your bar results and the next day being handed the case you're going to trial on in two weeks. Like, I mean, that is, that is a real, like, nut up or shut up moment. Like, I mean, it is. <laughs> I mean, you've been handed the keys to the car and now it's, it's time to go. And that's, 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 a, that's fun. It's so much fun, but it's also uh, scary as hell. Well, so as we sort of wrap up here, um, is there any sort of last uh, advice or anything that we didn't cover uh, that you would want to give to the law students? Um, yeah, I think it would be, um, and this is something that I, I might talk to y'all about afterwards. Um, I think that there should be a push by y'all society, but also by other, other students who might be interested in criminal law to develop some type of criminal law clinic. Um, at the law school. There's other clinics that exist. I know Josh Borderoot, he's a friend of mine. Um, you know, I ran against him for city council. Um, but uh, he's a great friend of mine, and I know he's in charge or works with those clinical programs. And so I think there should be a push to do some kind of criminal law clinic because when I was working with the Legal Aid Society in New York City, and I got, I got to go into court, like I said, and practice uh, with a client, that I knew from that minute, like I said, it cemented the idea, I want to be an advocate. I don't want to sit in an office, I want to be an advocate. Um, I do want to tell you, I know you're wrapping up, but I want to tell you one quick story. So when I was in law school and I got to practice uh, with my third year bar card, um, obviously I'm from Texas, so I would go in my suit and my cowboy boots, and that's how I would go to court. And so one day I was in court talking to a judge and I had my little misdemeanor client my supervisor from the Legal Aid Society was not present. I'm not sure where she was, but she wasn't there at that moment. And I'm having this colloquy with the judge. And again, because I'm from Texas, I was raised to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And the I could see the judge becoming visibly angry. And I did not know why. Did not know what was happening. I. I was becoming more ingratiating, the more angry she got, the more, yes ma'am, I'm, I'm so sorry, you know, whatever I can do. And at one point, the judge in this New York City courtroom stood up behind the bench, leaned over and pointed at me, and she says, Counselor, 
it is either judge or your honor. Do you understand? And I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and she took me into custody. She was going to hold me in contempt. Her bailiff took me into custody and <laughs> took me in the back. And my supervisor from the Legal Aid Society, she tells it later, she's like, I came in running, apologizing. He's from Texas, he's from Texas, it's, it's okay. And I talked to the judge afterwards and it was a, a simple cultural mis. She thought I was calling her old. Like she thought I was making a reference to the fact that she was older than I was by saying ma'am. And I was like, no, it's just, I'm still afraid that my daddy's gonna pop out from somewhere and hit me over the back of the head. <laughs> so, um, but you know, criminal law is fun. Like I said at the beginning, you'll have the best stories and it is, it is the most fun. It is the most rewarding to work with. It's great to give a client a check for 10 grand on a personal injury case. I love it. I love to see the smile on their face. But when you get to work with a victim as a prosecutor, a domestic violence victim, and you get to see them empowered, or when I get to work with a client who's a defendant and charged with a crime and, and we get them their case dismissed or that found not guilty, that is so incredibly rewarding and you actually feel on both sides like you're making a difference. And that to me is the best part about, about practicing criminal law is I get to wake up every day and actually make a difference in somebody's life. Right. Well, uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners for uh, tuning in. And this has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. And uh, we'll catch you next time. 